All right, your introduction material in front of you. Somebody commented and said, boy, that short introduction material. I said, well, it has to be. I ran out of paper, you know. But uh, it says this. Two prophets stood shoulder to shoulder. Haggai, an old man with the single burden of the temple, and Zechariah, a young man with a much wider view that included the long ages ahead. The visions of Zechariah soared far beyond his own day. He saw the coming of the Greeks and Romans, the crucifixion of Christ, the rescattering of the Jewish people, the rise of the Antichrist, the end-time horrors that await Jerusalem, and the return of Christ to set up a righteous kingdom on earth. The name Zechariah, which means the Lord remembers, was common among the Jews. More than 20 people in the Old Testament bore the name. This Zechariah calls himself the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, and Ezra called him simply the son of Edo. It is likely that the father of Zechariah died young, and for that reason he was linked directly with his grandfather in genealogies. Edo was one of the priests who returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel and Joshua. So Zechariah was born a priest, but he had what was called to the prophetic ministry before he was consecrated to the priestly office. It is generally accepted that Zechariah was quite young when he was called to preach. He began his prophetic ministry about two months later than his colleague Haggai. According to Jewish tradition, Zechariah became a member of the great synagogue and also had a share in arranging the temple liturgy. It is likely that he saw the finished temple. He is said to have lived to a ripe old age and to have been buried in a tomb near Haggai's. The marked difference between the style of the early chapters of the book of Zechariah and the style of the latter chapters probably indicates that chapters 9 through 14 were written by the prophet at a much later date, most likely after the completion of the temple. So we have a very broad prophetic scope set before us in the book of Zechariah. Uh, I would say this, that Zechariah deals with more than anybody else deals with. And not just because he, he takes more words to deal with it, uh, but the topics and the truths that are set forth are more vast, both in their chronology and the time frame that they encompass, and in their context, the truths that they convey, than any other of the minor prophets. And God gives this word of encouragement to those that are rebuilding the temple through the prophet Zechariah. So let's go ahead and begin tonight, and uh, if the Lord will help me to, this may not even take as long as we think it might, amen? Let's begin in verse number 1 of chapter 1. The Bible says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. The first thing that jumps off the page at me, and it may jump this way off the page to you, but is that Zechariah is dealing with a younger generation. Now, oftentimes there's a tendency when we find a portion of Scripture aimed towards a younger generation, we've got any kind of age uh, on us and any kind of snow up top, we tend to check out and say, well, that's not for me. 
But understand that the young men whom Zechariah is dealing with, they are young. Very likely they were teenagers in their 20s, maybe their 30s. But the truth that's being conveyed here uh, transcends beyond uh, age groups. What he is saying is this. Stop and consider the relationship I've had with your forefathers. He's saying, where are your fathers now? They're dead. Where are those that I dealt with and tried to reach? They're gone. God says, I dealt with them, I sent my prophets, and where are my prophets? They're gone as well. He's pointing to the past and he's saying this, that I dealt with them in such and such a way, but I would choose, if I could, to not deal with you in that way. You know, as we look back over the history of our country, we've been very much blessed. God's shown a lot of mercy. But there's no question that if you look back through the history of God's people, you'll find time and time again when God has had to chastise Let me say that it ought to be our earnest desire for God to not have to chastise. I understand that He will because we're sin-fallen, we're sin-sick, we make mistakes. And uh, whom the Lord loveth, He chases. I'm aware of that. But it ought to be our earnest desire to not make the same mistakes that those that have gone before us have made. And so Zechariah begins by saying to this little group of people that have uh, most likely been born in Babylon and have now come back to Israel, come back to Jerusalem, these are people that have never known freedom until now. I mean, they've never known what it is to be in Israel and to be in Jerusalem. I guess I should put it that way. They lived relatively free uh, in Babylon and then, of course, in Persia. But they didn't see the temple of many years ago. It stands as rubble and as a testimony to their parents' rebellion. They didn't get to see Jerusalem in her glory in the days of Solomon because Jerusalem has been raised to the ground and now it stands as a testament to their father's rebellion. God says, my word has been true. I like the way he says it. He says in verse number 6, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? What he's saying is this. They tried to run from my word, but my word caught up with them. They tried to run. They tried to live in sin and, and practice idolatry and assume it would be okay. But my words took hold of them. The things that I prophesied came true. So the opening vision begins with an exhortation to hear the word of God and to not make the mistakes that folks before us have made. And I think in this day that we live in, we ought to heed that. I think that we, in the day that we live in, can take a fresh approach to a relationship with God. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, I understand we're to stand in the old paths, uh, wherein is the good way. I'm aware of that. But I, I like what Vance Havner said. He, he made this quote one time. He said, what we need is not something new. He said, we need something so old that it seems new. And I, I believe that in this day that we live in. I believe that we need something so old that it's new to this world. And certainly biblical Christianity will seem like a new thing when we practice it and when we live it. So there's the introduction that he gives. God calls his people to repent. But then we see the second message, and this is the lengthy one tonight. God encourages his people to trust him. And he does this through ten visions that he gives them. We're going to jump right into them. The first vision is the vision of the horsemen. And the truth is this, that God watches the nations. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were their red horses speckled 
and whined. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees, and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now let's pause for a moment and let's examine what's been said here. There is some mystery, there's no question, with all of the visions that were given. There's some symbolism, and then there's just some mystery. There's some things that God was teaching that we may have a struggle and trouble understanding. But we know a few things about this. One is this, we understand that the man that was speaking, that was in the midst of the myrtle trees, is addressed first as a man, second as an angel, and then thirdly, in verse number 11, as the angel of the Lord. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know who the angel of the Lord is. He's all through the Scripture. And we find out from several of the Scriptures that this angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So the Bible says this, that a vision appeared to Zechariah, and he saw Jesus Christ sitting upon a horse and standing or sitting in the midst of the myrtle trees, with others around him upon horses. We know who these others upon the horses are, because the Bible says these are they, uh, or, or they answered and spoke to him and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. These are angels. These are messengers from the Lord. They have the responsibility of walking through the earth and observing what's taking place. It's my belief that these motor trees picture for us Israel. Motor tree was a very tender tree. It was a, a tree that was very fragile. And by speaking of it being in the bottom, in the glen, in the bottom land, it's speaking of them in the valley. So these tender trees in the place of the valley that seem forgotten, the Lord says, I'm dwelling in the midst and I'm walking in the midst of them. And he says, not only am I in the midst of them, but my angels are walking to and fro throughout the earth. And what do they say? Then the angel of the Lord, the man that was standing there, answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? Now what's the question he asks? When are you going to have mercy on Israel? When will Israel be restored? When will once again the favor of God shower down upon Jerusalem? That's the question that Christ had on his heart in Zechariah chapter number 1. The answer is this, And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. So the Lord says this, first off, I love Israel. They may seem like they're forgotten, but they're not forgotten. You can imagine how discouraging it must have been for this Jewish remnant that had come back to rebuild this temple. I mean, only 50,000 out of the millions of Jews that were alive came back to rebuild the temple. Out of all the priests, imagine how discouraging it must have been for Zechariah. Out of all the priests, the thousands of priests, only 74 of them returned back. It's a small group. Zechariah knows he's born into this priesthood. And he's part of a select group and part of only a few that really care and have con concern for the things of God. 
And so what an encouragement it must have been to learn these two things from this vision. The first thing that he learned was this, that God was still in the midst of Israel. You know, no matter how discouraging, no matter how frustrating, no matter how depressing our circumstances may be, we've been preaching a little bit on this on Sunday nights. We preached last night. We've been preaching on Joseph and being a steward of our circumstances. Last night we preached on, on stewardship in suffering and Joseph in prison. Joseph is in prison for, for probably, a, a good guess would be around 10 years probably. Could be as high as 12, uh, but probably around the, the time frame of 10 years. For a crime that he didn't commit, everybody forgot about him. The butler forgot about him. Potiphar forgot about him. His, his brothers forgot about him. But the Bible says, but the Lord was with Joseph. Let me say that we can face anything when we know the Lord is with us. Anything that we face, we can face when we know the Lord is with us. And then the second thing that he understands is that God still loves Israel. Despite all that had taken place, God still loved them. Even though they did not love Jerusalem, God still loved Jerusalem. And it's good to know that even when we don't care about the things we ought to care about, God still cares about those things. There's a lot of things in our life that we ought to care more about. You know that? That's why we run into, it run into difficulty with the Lord. Is <laughs> because He knows what's best and we don't always want what's best. It ought to be they loved Jerusalem. It ought to be that they desired to come back and rebuild Zion, but they didn't. But the Lord still loved them and He was still dealing with them and still working with them. So the first message is one to Israel. The second part of this message is a message to the heathen. Now I want you to look back at verse number two. Will you look at that with me? The Bible says this, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your father. That's what the Lord says about how he felt about Israel at one time. Sore displeased. He didn't hate them. He didn't want to do away with them. But their life and their testimony and their service and their worship was displeasing to God. And no doubt, Zechariah would have asked the, the very same question that, that Haggai, or that, excuse me, that Habakkuk struggled with. Why won't God's people get right with God? And why won't they do the right thing? But then he's faced with an even more difficult question, just as Habakkuk was. If God's going to judge his people, how could he use Gentiles to judge them? And the answer is given in verse number 16. The Lord had been sore displeased with Israel, but he says, I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. In other words, God says this, I, I, I had a certain amount of affliction. I had a certain, a certain boundary that I was willing to go to with Israel. I wanted to go to that place. I wanted to deal with them. I wanted to chastise them so much. There were so many blows that I wanted to land upon their back. But then the heathen nations took it a step further. So God says, because of their sin, I'm going to judge them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. I like that. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities, though prosperity shall be spread, shall yet, let me say that again, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So at a time when they thought, Surely the Lord has changed his mind about us, the Lord says, I have not changed my mind about you. Man, that's encouraging. I mean, listen to me, and, I, and I'm going to break from this for just a, a, a moment. And let me say that when I think of the Jews, and when I think of Jerusalem, when I, when I think of the Jews, I think of me. 
I'm not a Jew, but when I think of God's people, I know I am God, part of God's people because I've been born again. I know I'm saved. So when I see the way that God deals with the Jews, it gives me comfort over the way that God deals with me. I know He'll chasten me when I sin, but I know that He still loves me. But then when I think of Jerusalem and the land that they lived in, I think about my life, the things that, that comprise my life. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to sit there and feel like, well, God's changed His mind about me. Surely He don't love me like He used to. If He did, He wouldn't let this happen. I've messed up one too many times. I've sinned too, too badly, too wickedly. Surely he's changed his mind about me, but the Lord says, I'm, I'm, I'm yet going to choose Jerusalem. I've not changed my mind about you. He's going to say here in a little while, he's going to call him the apple of his eye. They didn't seem like that at the time, but I'm glad God's perspective is different from our perspective. Because there's times when, when if I was God, I'd throw me away. And it's a good thing I'm not God. Amen. So we see the first vision that's given, and it's a vision of the horsemen. Look at verse number 18 and 19. We see a second vision. It's the vision of the horns. The Bible says, then lifted, up mine, then lifted I up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And so these four horns represent for us the four world empires that have been instrumental in scattering the Jewish people. There's two sets of opinions about this, and I'll tell you what I believe, and, and uh, that may not account for much, but I'll tell you what I believe. We know that these are four world empires. These are they that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Those that have contributed in the scattering, contributed in the persecution. Uh, some would say, because Israel is mentioned, which would be the northern ten tribes, that it must deal with Assyria, with Babylon, and with Greece. I'm sort of the opinion, and also with Rome, uh, I'm sort of the opinion that it doesn't encompass Assyria. Assyria has passed off the global scene, and Assyria was destroyed so utterly uh, that, I mean, they're done with. They're nowhere in future Bible prophecy, except in the sense that the spirit of the Assyrians, their violence, their hatred, their wickedness, will one day resurface in the uh, in the empire of the Antichrist. But as a, as a geographical place or entity, they're done with. Then there's the opinion that these four horns represent the four great world empires that are revealed to us in the book of Daniel. That's sort of my opinion. I believe that. I lean that way. Wouldn't fuss with a man if he believed otherwise, but that's what I believe about it. I believe it deals with Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. So I believe those four empires are referenced here. They're shown as uh, with symbols of power. The horn in the Word of God always symbolizes power. It reflects the, the horn that would be upon a, a, a bull or, or a beast of any kind. And that's the place of their strength and of their defense. Then in verse number 20, we see the third vision, the vision of four carpenters. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Now that word carpenter is just like the word carpenter in the New Testament. doesn't necessarily denote someone that works in woodworking, but merely someone that is an artisan, someone that deals, uh, that, that is a craftsman, that works with their hands. And really, if the word denotes any of the modern crafts, it would be that of stonework and, and masonry. And so the Lord says these workmen, these craftsmen, these carpenters, Zechariah says, I saw these four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah. 
so that no man did lift up his head. So the Lord points back at the horn, says, these are the horns, these are the empires. And then he says this, but these, speaking of the carpenters, are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. You say, what's the Lord trying to teach us here? Well, we see in the horsemen that God watches the nations, and we see in the horns and the carpenters that God judges the nations. In other words, God says this. He shows Zechariah four horns. Zechariah says, what are those? He says, those are the four nations that I've used to judge Israel and the four empires. And then he sees four carpenters just right behind it. And he says, what are those? He says, these are the four instruments I'm using to judge those nations. As you read the Bible, you'll find this out. God loves everybody. We know that. The Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says God, uh, Christ tasted death for us. We're aware of that. But let me say that in a national sense and in a political sense, and uh, even maybe we could say in an ethnic sense, that God loves the Jews. He loves Israel. They are the apple of his eye. They are his secret treasure. They are his, his peculiar people, his precious gem. He loves them. He cares about them. Now, we understand that in Christ Jesus, we're, we're, the middle wall of partition is broke down. We understand we're made to partake in that covenant. But it doesn't change the fact that God has an earthly people, and that earthly people are the Jewish people. The promises that God made to Israel, he didn't make to America or to Russia or to Libya or to Egypt or to France or to Germany. He made them to the Jews and to, the, to Israel. The Lord says, I've raised up empires to judge you, but just as soon. And by the way, you notice how closely these two visions correlate? Really, they're almost not even two separate visions, but one and the same. And God says this, before I can close the book, before I can finish the chapter on my judgment of the Jews, I have to mention that I'll also judge those that I've used to judge the Jews. In other words, the Lord will not allow people to persecute his, his chosen people without dealing with them. So those are the first three. Look with me at chapter number two. And we see in chapter number two a single vision given, and it's the vision of the measuring line. Look what it says. I lift up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now, we know what a measuring line is. We don't use a measuring line today, but we use a measuring tape. And uh, it was basically for that same purpose. It had certain knots in it or marks in it where he would know as he measured things out how long something was. So he sees this with a, with a measuring tape essentially in his hand. Then said I, whither goest thou? And he said unto me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth. And another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. This is a beautiful vision, if you really put it in your mind, what's taking place. Zechariah is standing there, and a man walks up that has a measuring tape in his hand. And he says, Where are you going? What are you doing? And he says, I'm going out to measure Jerusalem. And then as he's making his way there, another man runs up to him and says, Wait, before you measure it, go back and tell that young man that Jerusalem is going to be so broad that it can't be measured. I'll tell you what that makes me think of, and I understand there's a prophetical application of this. I understand that one day Jerusalem is going to be the capital and heartbeat of the entire earth. Be aware of that. But it makes me think about the promise of God in heaven. 
I, I feel sort of like every time that I go to preach on heaven, I sort of feel like that first man. I've got a measuring tape in my hand, and I'm going to tell people what it's like. And the more that I get in my Bible, the more that the Holy Ghost comes running to me and says, wait a minute, you just run on back and tell them it can't be measured. Can't be measured. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the, to the hearts of men what God hath prepared for them that love Him. The blessings of God are inexhaustible. The riches of Christ cannot be sounded. They can't be fathomed. The depth of His riches and grace. The Lord says, He was going out, the man was going out to measure Jerusalem. Aren't you glad, listen, aren't you glad the measurements are taken then and not now? You know, it wouldn't have looked like much if He had measured it in that moment. At that time, there wasn't much left of Jerusalem. I mean, the walls hadn't even been built yet. There wasn't much left there. Ezra had come and they had rebuilt the temple first and the walls were still broken down. It wouldn't have seemed like much. It wouldn't have seemed like much. But you see, God doesn't measure it at the beginning. He measures it at the end. When the matter is finished and when it's done. You know, you know what the book of Ecclesiastes says? It says that the end of the matter is far better than the beginning. Well, let me tell you something. If you were to measure the goodness of God on my life right now, now it's more than I deserve, and it's far greater than I could fathom. But it wouldn't seem like much compared to how he'll measure it one day and see all of his goodness and grace upon me. So he says, stop, don't measure it. It's without measure. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. When you sing Lily of the Valley, you didn't know it, but that's where that line comes from. A wall of fire about me. I have nothing now to fear. When I was growing up, I thought what that meant was a wall of persecution, but I don't have to be afraid, but that's not what it means. What it's referencing is here in Zechariah, where it talks about the Lord would be a wall of fire around his people. He says, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. I remember one time, this don't have anything to do with the lesson, but remember one time I was looking, I, I've got uh, some Bibles that belong to my old pastor. And, uh, you know, he'd wear a new Bible out once a year. And I remember one time I was looking through one of his Bibles and I came to that passage where it says, Ho, Ho, and he wrote Santa Claus. <laughs> Sometimes you lose a little respect for people when you really know them too well. But the exhortation that's given in verse number 6 is for those that are still in the land of Babylon. It's called the land of the north. It wasn't really to the north, but it's called the land of the north because that's, that's the direction that they invaded from. And so uh, when it says, come forth and flee from the land of the north, the Lord is saying, get out of Babylon. Get out of Babylon. Verse 7, deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory... Hath he, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. Ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. In other words, their servants are going to pillage them and take what they have. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. And those verses we have recorded for us God's warning to those that are living in Babylon because he will judge Babylon. 
We understand that this looks beyond the scope of the immediate and looks into the end times. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that Babylon is going to be built again, and it once again will be the glory of the world. The Bible says there's coming a day when the Lord will destroy Babylon, and that lamentation that's so famous in, in the book of Revelation, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen is referenced here in the book of Zechariah. You know the exhortation that gives me as a Christian? Go ahead and quit living in the world, because the world's passing away. The world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We dwell in the world, we can make our investment in the world, but the world's passing away. We'd be a lot better off to invest in eternal matters, because they're just that, they're eternal. Chapter number 3 gives to us uh, two different visions. And it begins with a vision about Joshua. Now, Joshua is the high priest in Israel at that time. And we're presented the vision of the high priest being cleansed. And it's a picture of Israel as a nation being cleansed. One of the cornerstone prophecies in the Word of God that is very important to understand is that at the end of the Great Tribulation, the Jewish nation will turn to Christ in faith and be born again and saved. Now, lots of people don't talk about that. The passage that says a nation will be born in a day, everybody talks about that, and they point to 1948, and they say, oh, look, a nation was born. That's not what it's talking about. Read the context. It's not dealing with uh, with a nation in a geographical or political sense being born, but it's speaking of them turning and in faith, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, preacher, does that mean God's going to force them? No, God's not going to force them, but He knows the end from the beginning. He knows that is going to happen. That was a promise of God that they individually are going to make those decisions when they look on Him whom they pierced. And that also is referenced here in the book of Zechariah. So God is dealing with this cleansing of Israel. He says in verse number 1 of chapter 3, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? That's very interesting language. A lot of preachers have preached on that. It's a beautiful truth. What the Lord's saying is, I have a remnant here. They've been through the purifying fire. You know, God said this, that he would cure Jews, or cure Israel of their idolatry when they went into captivity, and that did happen. We're going to see here uh, with one of the later uh, visions that are given, uh, the vision of the ephah in chapter number 5, we're going to see that there's a spirit of commercialism that has uh, entrapped Jewish people by large, but the spirit of idolatry that was within them was purged when they went into Babylon. Never since then have Jews been prone to idolatry or to adopting the gods, pagan, heathen gods, of those that are infidels and do not know the Lord. They were purified of that. They've been plucked out of the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head, and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So in Joshua is pictured the Jewish nation. 
At first they're filthy in unrighteousness and wickedness. We know that Isaiah said that all righteousness is but filthy rags before the Lord. One of the commandments of the, and if you ever study the, the job, the responsibilities of a high priest, one of the things you'll immediately notice is uh, that they were required to be clean. I mean, they, they washed constantly. And part of that was for ceremonial purposes, if they, if they touched anything unclean or something of that sort. But then part of it was just to maintain the hygiene of the matter. They would always be clean. That was how God envisioned them and designed them. They were to stand before His presence, clean before Him. But when God looks at Joshua, and when Joshua looks at Joshua, and when Satan looks at Joshua, and when those that are standing by look at Joshua, they don't see him clean. They see him filthy. They see him in rags. They see him in filth. Let me say that there's no question for the Christian, though he'd be born again, that his life is not always what it ought to be. In fact, rarely is it ever what it ought to be. But what an encouragement. And by the way, we see an, ad an adversary here. Do you notice that? Satan stood by to resist Joshua. You know what that literally means? He literally would accuse Joshua before the Lord. The same way that in Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He would accuse and bring accusations before the Lord. Don't you see your high priest Joshua? Look how wicked he is. Look how unrighteous. But the Lord rebuked him and said this, I've chosen him. He's a brand plucked out of the fire. I know he doesn't look like what he ought to look like. I know he's not everything he ought to be. But you just wait because there's a change of clothes coming his way. I'm thankful to know that though I stand justified in Jesus Christ, I'm not perfect. And I sin and I mess up and I make mistakes. But there is coming a day when I get a change of clothes. Paul said, this vile body shall be made like unto his glorious body. And one of these days, that which is sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption. That which is uh, sown in dishonor will be raised in honor, be raised in glory. There's coming a day. And the Lord says, I'm going to do that for Israel. And he is going to do that at the end of the tribulation period when they all turn to him in faith. Verse number 8 says this, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, your King James Bible has that in all capital letters, and there's a reason. Two reasons. One, it's a title. But two, it's a title of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of his names in the Old Testament. It's interesting because that title given branch is found three times in the Old Testament, uh, or four times, excuse me, in the Old Testament. Once it speaks of the branch as the king that's coming. And that reflects the teachings of the book of Matthew. Here in chapter 3 of Zechariah, he's called the servant, the branch. That speaks of uh, the book of Mark and his position as the servant of man and servant of God. In one of the Old Testament books, well, in the book of Zechariah, the branch is mentioned again as being man. That speaks of his capacity as the son of man, presented in the book of Luke. And then the branch is mentioned as Jehovah, the son of God and God in the flesh. So we have, uh, it's, it's undisputable here that we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in this person, this servant called the branch. It says, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now we know what those seven eyes are. If you've studied your Bible, the seven eyes are dealt with in the book of Revelation, and they're dealt with in the book of Isaiah. And the eyes are pictures of the sevenfold manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit publicly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, he didn't cease to be God. He didn't become any less God when he was incarnated in this world, when he was born in this world. But do you know that he didn't do a single miracle till the Spirit of God rested upon him? 
I, I heard someone say one time that, oh, I'm sure when he was a little boy, he must have done all kinds of miracles and healed little birds with broken wings and all that nonsense. And it is nonsense, because the Bible says this, this beginning of miracles did Jesus at Cana of Galilee. That was the first miracle he ever performed, was at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. And it did not take place until after the Holy Spirit and the likeness of a dove rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why is that? Did he not have the power? Oh, sure he had the power. Uh, did he not want to help people? Oh, sure he wanted to help people. But in line and in keeping with the prophetic ministry, it was the work of the Holy Spirit striving with men. That was what Christ was doing during his earthly ministry. And so it wasn't until the Spirit of God rested upon it. Those seven eyes speak of the seven manifestations of seven spirits in the book of Isaiah, I believe chapter 11, that are spoken about uh, the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit being expressed and manifest through his earthly ministry. He says this, Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor, and under the vine and under the fig tree. So the Lord says that, first off, he's placing a mitre upon Joshua's head as the priest. But then we see at the end of chapter 3 that he's crowning his servant, the branch, as king. And when it speaks of the engraving, it's speaking of the engraving that would be upon his crown. So we have the dual coronation here in chapter number 3 of both priest and king. This is a unique Truth in Scripture, unique only to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was forbidden in the Old Testament for a priest to be a king or a king to be a priest. The great king Uzziah, one of the uh, greatest kings that ever lived, he was the king in the days of Isaiah. Uh, when the Bible talks about in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord uh, high and holy lifted up and his train filled the temple. Uzziah was a godly king. But one of the mistakes that uh, that was a spot upon his uh, kingdom and his reign and his career was that he went into the temple and tried to uh, enter into the office of the priest. He tried to give a sacrifice. God smote him with leprosy when that happened. It was forbidden for there to be a priest and a king. And yet we find early in the word of God, we find a priest king. goes by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was, uh, the Bible uh, tells us that he was uh, the king of Salem and the king of peace. And he was a high priest, and Abraham offered him tithes. I don't have time to go into all of it. I wish I did. I'd love to, uh, because the book of Hebrews goes into all of it, about how that Christ was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. Uh, he didn't have to be appointed uh, like Aaron had to be appointed, but he was called. Uh, but suffice it to say that in these two visions, we have a picture of Christ being crowned both as priest and as king. Look with me at chapter 4. We'll see in chapter number 4 uh, a couple of visions. The first we'll see is the vision of the lampstand and the olive trees. If you study the book of Revelation, you're going to recognize some things here. Uh, let's begin at verse number 1. Uh, the Bible says this, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side of the bowl. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now let's get the picture in our mind. 
He sees a, a lamp. He sees a, a lampstand uh, there before him. And on either side are olive trees that are constantly feeding oil to these lamps. So these lamps have a direct supply from these two olive trees of oil uh, straight from the source. And he says, what are these? Verse number 5, Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. He shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Now shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven, meaning the seven candlesticks. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I don't have time to, but I want you tonight, if you get time, to read Revelation chapter 11. Compare it with Zechariah chapter number 4. Zechariah sees these seven lamps fed by these uh, two olive trees uh, pouring into them. I say lamps. It's a lamp stand with seven lamps. He says, what are these? And the Lord answers him by saying this. Zerubbabel started this work, and he's going to finish this work. It won't be by might or by power, but my spirit. Now, what did Zerubbabel begin we know that he began uh, the, the recommencing the building of the temple. But I believe it looks a little further than that. You see, what Zerubbabel was, was really, boy, say that five times fast, what Zerubbabel was really aiming at was seeing the Jews restored to the land of Israel and worshiping the Lord. In other words, for everything to be set how it ought to be set, that their hearts would be turned to God once again. This looks forward to the two witnesses. They're the two olive trees, and they're called that. Uh, in Revelation chapter 11, these are the two witnesses that are going to rise up in the last days and preach to the Jewish people. There's going to be a revival of true biblical spiritual faith in the Messiah amongst the Jewish people. There will be 144,000. They won't be Jehovah's Witnesses. I hate to tell them that. But 12,000 from every tribe, 12,000 young men from every tribe, the nation of Israel, will go out and do the preaching in this revival. There will be multitudes in Israel turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This will take place not by might nor by power but by my spirit, saith the Lord. In other words, Zerubbabel, build the temple, but the temple won't do it. Uh, organize the furniture, but the furniture won't do it. Give the sacrifices, but the sacrifices won't do it. That won't turn these people back to me. But one day, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and through the preaching of the two witnesses and the 144,000, uh, many of the Jews will turn back, and there will be a revival take place. So we have the vision of the lampstand and the olive trees. Look with me at chapter number 5. We see another uh, vision given to us. In fact, we see two in chapter number 5. The first is of the flying scroll. You've heard people say this is the only food fight in the Bible. It says, Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. 
And uh, it says, and he answered, he did said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits. The breadth thereof ten cubits. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. A cubit at that time was was approximately uh, the the size of a man's forearm, uh, approximately eighteen inches. So you have thirty by fifteen feet. Now that's a big roll. It's not a Kaiser roll, uh, but it's talking about a scroll. Zerubbabel says, I see this big massive scroll, 30 by 15 feet, and it's flying. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof, and the stones thereof. I believe what Zechariah is seeing is a picture of the word of God. Oftentimes, a scroll in the Bible pictures for us the written word. I think we even have a little bit of a, a, a detail that is snuck in here, because what are the two uh, sins that are mentioned here? Those that steal and those that swear. That encompasses those that mistreat man. Swearing encompasses those that mistreat God. Zechariah says, I see the word of the Lord, and it's going over all the earth, and it's a curse to all the earth. And it sees everyone that steals and everyone that swears. It goes into the houses and searches them out. And something about why this was a comfort to Zechariah. This was a comfort to him because he was living at a time when there was total apathy for the word of God. People that couldn't care less about the law of the Lord. They'd rather stay in Babylon and live in comfort and pleasure and leisure than see the temple rebuilt. And God says, don't think for one moment, Zechariah, that I've not noticed that. My word goes forth. It will not return unto me void. will accomplish that which I have sent it out to do. My word will judge them one day. Uh, the vision in verse number 5 to the end of the chapter is a little bit more obscure. We're going to try to hurry through. We're almost done. Bible says, Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes, and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. Now, an ephah was a, a, a half measure. Uh, it was a basket that was used in Jerusalem that time to measure out like a half measure of barley. It was a basket, oh, probably about yay big, yay big around, just big enough to fit a person inside, to give you a little bit of perspective. And he says this, that there's an ephah going forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. A talent of lead, uh, a talent was the largest weight uh, measurement that they had. And he says there's a woman that sits in this basket, and there's a talent of lead sitting on top of the basket, sealing her in. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven, then said unto the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now you say, What in the world does that mean, preacher? 
Well, the ephah spoke of commerce, because it would have been the means where you would have carried barley and goods and, and sold things. The woman that said in the midst of it is a picture of, of the spirit of commercialism. They had a problem, as I'd already mentioned, with idolatry before they went into Babylon. When they came out of Babylon, they didn't really have a problem with idolatry in a sense, but they did have an infatuation with commercialism. That's why they didn't, uh, so many of them didn't leave and come back home. They was making good money in Babylon. Let me say this, and I try to do this as sensitively and respectfully as I can, uh, but that's still true of Jews today. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a reason that, that a lot of times when you're bargaining with someone, you might call it to Jew it down. I know that may not be politically correct, but we know what that means. Uh, you'll hear people all the time, and people that hate Jews and hate what they would call Zionism and Zionists, will all the time talk about how Jews have all the money and so on and so forth. Uh, well, there's that, there's some truth to that. Jews typically are well off. Uh, part of the reason is because God blesses those that bless them. But part of the reason, too, is because of the infatuation that they have with money. Uh, this isn't true of every single one, and it's certainly not true because of the DNA or the blood that flows through their veins. But as a people, they have adopted a spirit of commercialism. The Lord says this, uh, look what it says back in, uh, let's see, verse number uh, 6. It says, this is their resemblance through all the earth. In other words, when people see the Jew, they see this. They see symbols of commerce. They see money as their idol. The Lord says, it's not of God. I'm going to purge them of it. And so the Lord looks at it, looks at the woman, looks at the ephah and says this is wickedness and he sends it back to the land of Shinar now where's the land of Shinar? that's Babylon one day Babylon's going to be rebuilt the book of Revelation teaches us and uh, the God during that time is going to be the God that there is now in the world which is money you know you hear people say one of the most misquoted scripture uh, is where the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil you hear people say all the time money is the root of all evil no it's not the love of money is the root of all evil and certainly that's the God of this world right now. I know Satan is, but that's the God that they worship openly and unashamedly. And so that spirit of commercialism is sent back to Babylon. God says, I'm going to purge my people of it one day. But there it's going to establish itself and build a base. There will be its headquarters. There will be the beginning of its kingdom. Look at verse number 1 of chapter number 6. We see one more vision here in chapter number 6. It says, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses. Then the second chariot, black horses. Then the third chariot, white horses. And then the fourth chariot, gristled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. And the grizzled go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go, that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country, they have quieted my spirit in the north country. I wish I could say a lot more than I've got time to tonight about this passage. The vision is of four chariots and of four different types of horses. They picture for us the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, I think that anybody that's read their Bible can see the comparison, if you've read the book of Revelation, between the two visions that are set forth. 
They're described as coming from mountains of brass. Brass in the Bible pictures judgment. And I think that the idea, the vision here is, is all of the judgment that this world has laid up in the heavens. All of the wickedness, all of the wrongdoings, which God has kept a record of, every single one that has taken place, is stored up in God's waiting to judge the earth. One day he'll loose that judgment upon this earth. As far as speaking about the North Country, I'll say this. Russia has a prominent role in end-time prophecy. Russia has always, at least for the past 150 years, and still does today, embodies the spirit of militant atheism. And it says this, the black and the white horses. Now, what are the black and the white horses? The black horses in the, in the book of Revelation represent for us uh, death, uh, poverty, famine. The white horses represent for us a false peace. And through those, the Lord says, my spirit is quieted in the North Country. Part of the reason that atheism is so prevalent in Russia is because though their people are not prosperous, just because of their land mass and their military strength, uh, they've gotten what they've needed, what they've wanted through the means of war and through the means of oppression, and they have a false peace. Uh, sometimes I feel our government does something to aid that false peace. But uh, that's what I believe about it. I guess you could fuss and debate about it, but that's what I believe. Uh, so you have these four chariots going out. Ten visions have been given to Zechariah. At the end of chapter number 6, the Bible says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldeiah, of Tobijah, of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. He shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. In these ten visions, God has taken Zechariah from beholding the fragile and weak Jews as myrtle trees in the valley, all the way to the judgment and culmination of God's wrath on the world empires. And there's nothing left now except to crown his king. So in these last few verses of chapter 6, that's what he does. And the crown shall be uh, to Helam and to Tobijah and to Jediah and to him, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Thus ends the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah, probably the most perplexing of the book of Zechariah, and some of the most perplexing in the entire word of God. But in these ten visions, Zechariah found encouragement. I believe we can find encouragement. Uh, if nothing else, we can find encouragement to know that God's plan is still working. God's purpose is still being accomplished. And God's clock is still running, and his timetable is still accurate. He's got a plan that he's accomplishing in this world. We can take encouragement in that. Amen?